You're listening to Subconscious Mind Mastery Podcast number 98. Wow, we've almost done a hundred of these, gang. Can you believe that? Well, we have a special one, another interview podcast today. And oh, by the way, I have to announce that I have started production of book number six with Fred Dodson. This one is called The Miracles of Attention and Awareness. It was just released, well, like in July of 2016, so just out on Amazon, and we are working on the audiobook, and Fred tells me that this one is really long. My Kindle that I'm reading from keeps increasing in the amount of time that it takes to read the rest of the book, so uh, I could be in for a project here. But, you know, Fred's material, just I just have to say again and again, it's like, you know, most books you read something, and if you take away one or two or a couple, three things, you're, you know, you're satisfied, right? With Fred, it is almost every word. I wouldn't say every word. That would be an exaggeration, but it's darn near every sentence has some kind of a nugget in it with a takeaway. So I guess that's probably up for late August, early September. Now, I want to reintroduce you to another author, this one, Tom Nehrer. Tom visited with us first in podcast number 72. We talked about the subconscious mind with Tom, and we recorded a sequel on that afternoon with my friend Daniel Danovi. And honestly, really, it was the primary conversation that Tom had come to town to talk to the DFW IONS group, which at the end of this interview, for those of you in the DFW area, Daniel is going to talk about how you can participate in the monthly meetings of the Dallas IONS group that he leads. So we recorded this second episode, and something just told me to pause. Now, you know, this podcast. And every episode, literally every episode that has been done in this podcast has been from intuition. This thing started from intuition in 2013, and every subsequent episode, all 97 and now 98 of them, has been the result of something that would come from meditation or hiking or walking or just sitting and journaling and something would ripple up and then a podcast would be produced. So this is a topic that I am vastly interested in exploring. We're going to be hearing Tom's thoughts today on Scripture, the Bible, and some of the things that he believes, and I agree, have changed since the first early manuscripts of the Bible started to appear. Now, Tom is a scientist by training, and you're definitely going to hear his scientific mind engage as he forms his analyses of different issues that we're going to talk about over the next hour. Now, while Tom was staying in Dallas, he stayed with Daniel. And you'll hear Daniel recount this, and I think it's a very interesting point that my friend Daniel is a very studied individual on this topic as well and has formulated a lot of deep thought around Christianity and spirituality from that perspective and how it fits into the structure of his life now. He is not a casual observer. I want to get that point across. And Daniel says that he learned more in the, what, 36 to 48 hours that Tom Nehrer was around just in having conversation and meals with him than he probably has over the course of the rest of his life. In other words, this is a rare privilege, a deep resource, thought, and analysis from a scientific perspective that's going to open your eyes to some things that you probably hadn't thought about. Now, why the gap between 72 and 98? Honestly, I have no idea. This is a topic that I have to be very careful with. Scars are deep. I have not resolved everything yet. I don't feel, in such, to some degree, I don't feel, I don't feel complete or worthy or proper. I don't know what the right word is, but to comment on some of these things. There are some deep wounds, and there's healing, and there's putting pieces back together, and there's some wanting to believe but hesitant to believe, and then, and really, what triggered this, is. There's just so much darn judgment that comes from the Christian perspective. 
and and that's what really triggered this is I encountered yet another mud pie in the face for my background and my history. And it came from people who should be loving and forgiving and understanding. But oh no. So it just allowed me the space to open this back up. And it was almost again in meditating about it. I spent a lot of time working through it. And the little tap on the shoulder was actually quite loud. And in a way to say, don't make it wrong and don't be judgmental. But this is a topic that needs to be explored. And really, what a perfect way to kick this off than with a scientist who has formulated his own opinions after looking at this from careful analysis, formulating his own scientific conclusions, and being able to express them eloquently, very well spoken, and in a way that you can clearly understand. I have to re-apologize for my voice during this interview. I had just had a little procedure in the throat, and it had not quite healed back yet, so it sounds like I was hoarse, which I was, but that's where Daniel came in to kind of help carry the load as well. So we're going to hear from Tom Nehrer in this episode, and then I have been really meditating about this and journaling and making podcast notes. So in the next podcast, number 99, we will wrap up the first 100 with my collective thoughts on what you're about to hear and just some of this material in general. So those of you who have been hurt by the church, that this is a mystery that you somehow can't connect with, I think you're going to find the next two podcasts quite interesting. Without further ado, let's join the second interview now with Tom Nehrer and Daniel Danovi. Tom, welcome back to Subconscious Mind Mastery. Yeah, great to be here again. We're getting two for one while he's in town. It's Absolutely. Back, it's like we took a bathroom break. <laughs> back over here to do the second one. But um, this one comes to me with a lot of great respect because I know where I was personally for over 40 years. And a lot of people, this is an untouchable subject for a lot of people. This is a, um, it's holy. This is, we're talking about scripture. We're talking about God's word, and we're talking about something that you don't fool with mm. is the perspective. I mean, that's what I grew up with in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So as people listen to this, I think what we're trying to achieve here is to move the camera 360 degrees around this and give them your perspective. And people who have listened to the 70-some-odd podcasts that we've done here, is it's just been my journey of, going th of realizing that there were some cracks in oh, the yeah. armor and then figuring out how to deal with that. So we're looking forward to your insight. Daniel Danovi again with us. Why don't you kick things off, Daniel? Hi. Uh, good to be back after a quick pause. And uh, <laughs> So, Tom, I think an important place to start is, like, what is your motivation for uh, taking on this subject? I mean, you just have something against the Christian faith or? Well, yes and no. Um First of all, I think it's necessary to recognize that Christianity and Western culture grew up together. You know, Christianity, the Catholic Church, and the development of Christianity was uh, a key element in our whole uh, development of tradition. You, you can hardly scarcely uh, separate the two. So it's necessary to at least have respect for the belief structure that is Christianity. But um, very much like you, Thomas, when I was a, a kid, my mother was a Presbyterian and very devout, and she would hustle me off to Sunday school and church, and they'd be telling me stuff, and I'm a rather analytical guy in any case. And uh, Engineer, be, right? Yes. Engineer, just uh, to remind. My degree's in chemical engineering, right. So and you're I've thinking done, through an, an, an analytical engineering yes. perspective on this. And I've done maybe 20 years of software development, too, so even worse. <laughs> okay. I think that's important as we hear what you have to say. When, yeah. But this is when you were a kid, so we knew this engineer was in you. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you, you bring your uh, your tools with you. You, know, you, you bring a, a certain propensity and a certain character into life with you. But uh, we'd be going home from church on after Sunday, you know, to get ready for our roast beef dinner, which was a you know kind of a family tradition. And I'd be tagging along and say, oh, "Mom, you know that can't be right. You can't walk on water. You can't turn water into wine. There's stuff that's in wine that's not in water." And they told me in Sunday school that Jesus was doing these miracles, but you can't do that. Oh, but you just have to have faith. Well, of course, I later came to see that whatever it is, whatever beliefs you hold, whatever faith you have. 
in something that's not obvious and not really clearly a, a portion of reality that you see seems to be true. Well, I couldn't have told my mother, well, it's only because you believe in it. But, uh, you know, later as I progressed through life and, you know, our, our first talk, our, the first half of the section, uh, I indicated very clearly how you as a person are connected to the world. You attract certain patterns, that the, the source to those patterns is within. Well, as you see that, and as I came ever more clearly in my lifetime to see it, it was really, really obvious what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, if you look, if you read through the Gospels, uh, he talked about this kingdom of heaven within. If you see it, you'll be blessed. That is, good things will happen, not bad things. And the disciples would repeatedly come back to him and, oh, when is this kingdom going to come? In ancient times, the Jewish people were looking for ages for a Messiah. And in their terminology, the Messiah was going to come and lead them in rebellion to freedom to establish a state of Yahweh God. Yahweh was the name of the the later God of the uh, Jewish people. To establish this kingdom here and uh, free them from their oppressors. Well, Traditionally, where they happened to be living in the Middle East, they were surrounded with oppressing empires. There was Persia, there was Mesopotamia, uh, ultimately the Asia Minor, and Egypt, all right around them. So they were like a ping-pong ball getting bounced around by control from other people. Well, Jesus came along with a message where he was saying, you know, it's not out there. It's not up there somewhere. It's within you. The kingdom of heaven is within but his disciples couldn't shed that. And Paul, we went down the St. Paul Street to get here. And I said, I'm not quite sure I want to go down that street. <laughs> Paul, Paul established his ideas in Christianity, not Jesus's. Paul came along, had never met Jesus. His idea of Jesus was a vision he saw in the sky on the way to Damascus to try to persecute some of the local uh, early proto-Christian believers. So Paul was trying to establish this notion that Jesus did not die. He still exists in the sky, and he, he's going to come down again and, and save us. Of course, he never did. And the problem is, is multiple. In the time, in the first century, the time of Paul, they didn't picture a God off in another dimension as we do, as a spiritual entity. In the first century, as in their, the early traditions, they pictured the world in the Mesopotamian model that the Jewish people held as a world of earth, of soil with water underneath it, and above it a firmament, a big dome, a big blue dome, above which was water, because they pictured the waters above and the waters below. That's what they were talking about if you read the Bible. And above the waters was where heaven was because God was a big physical creature. They didn't picture him as this uh, intangible uh, spiritual being, but as a real being. And in their minds, that was the case, very much like the Greeks pictured the gods up on Olympus and uh, Zoroastrianism pictured Ahura Mazda in, uh, in remote regions. They pictured them as real. Jesus was trying to get people to move off of that model that uh, these are ideas up there, but the kingdom of heaven is within you. And ultimately, in my book, The the Illusion of Truth, my third book, with truth in quotes, again, because whatever you hold as belief will seem to be true. So you have a truth, but that truth is only based on your current acceptance of that as as valid. Uh, In The Illusion of Truth, I look at nine elements of Jesus' parables which indicate that he had this clear awareness, this clear recognition of the connection that we all have with reality. But in order to do that, I have to first give you background. So many people think that that, uh, individuals 2,000 years ago kind of dealt with the world like we do. They thought like we do, and they move around. They just only had horses and camels. They didn't have cars. But that's absolutely not the truth. Uh, You can reconstruct the early, like the first century mindset with a little bit of research. They didn't understand all of the things that we learn in school, mathematics and science and geology and geography and world cultures. They didn't understand government. They didn't understand um, city organizations, automobiles, uh, manufacturing. There was no middle class. There There were no companies. Much of the way we see the world is is more modern uh, development. You have to put yourself in the mindset of the early person in the first century 
who thought Yahweh God and evil spirits on the other end of the equation were what was making life happen to them. Uh, when Jesus encountered people and healed them, they attributed that to him flushing out evil spirits. Uh, their world was very primitive. So in my book, that's the first thing I talk about is give you the background for how people related to the world back then and the cultural context and historical stance into which Jesus uh, came. If you don't know that all of that, you, you build up a lot of ideas and grand generalities about Christianity that, that aren't really supported even with uh, Christian scholarship. I did a lot of research. It's not just my point of view that's woven into the illusion of truth. I did a great deal of research into modern scholarship of Christianity where they, they instead of just reading the quotes in English in the current Bible, they look at the ancient manuscripts written in Greek that were translated into Latin and then later translated into English to see what was meant in the first place. What did the original writer of Matthew and Mark and so forth, the Gospels, what did they have to say originally? Because there were a lot of changes. There were uh, errors made in copying. In ancient times, you had to copy manuscripts manually because the, the scroll would wear out. The papyrus scroll would wear out after usage. You had to copy them. And many errors were introduced and changes were introduced. Now, uh, let me ask you on that point because... Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could get into – I don't know if we have time. I don't know if this is the direction we should go with this, but but the um, accuracy of the documents. Oh. But um, but how do we know that errors were made? Well, they do research. They have uh, the oldest um, – the oldest complete version of the New Testament both date to about the middle of the 4th century, so somewhere around 350. There's the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. A Codex – is simply uh, the original manuscripts were written in scrolls, so you had to scroll from front to the back. There were columns of Greek characters, and you had to go from like left to right and scroll through. Scrolls wore out, so they started cutting them into pieces of paper, into pieces, I should say, pieces of papyrus or parchment. It was also another option. And binding them, so like the original book. So codex means that. They found a copy in the Vatican, which is called Codex Vaticanus, which dates from about the middle of the 4th century. And the Sinai, Codex Sinaiticus, was found in the Sinai. When they compare these two rather complete texts of the 27 books in the New Testament, they find thousands of differences what they do have also, though, are other little uh, fragments and shreds and, and smaller pieces of one gospel or the other, one of, you know, one of the letters or the other of the New Testament. So they can compare and make notes as to where the changes were and sometimes work them the whole way back to where they see that, well, in, in the second century, when a copy was made, they made this error or somebody added something. The whole last section, Mark, the very last... Uh, section of Mark from uh, verse 9 to verse 16 at the end of Mark doesn't appear in the oldest copies of Mark. So when uh, Jesus has been crucified and two women find him, go to the tomb to find him, Mark ends in the original versions. But somebody didn't like that ending, so they later (laughs) added to it that that other ending, and of course that got rolled into the... Then let me throw this question at you. With possible inaccuracies, like you're saying, yes. compare this to that, and it doesn't, and a tag onto Mark and all these things. How has something withstood 2,000 years? I mean, there's not another story that I can think of. Maybe it's out there, but even mythology isn't practiced today. Mm-hmm. There's no other story that's held up in a culture for 2,000 years, basically intact. How has that happened? How does it have those kinds of legs? Yeah, that that's a, a very interesting uh, question, particularly when there were other itinerant speakers and preachers and so forth that were wandering around at the time. And I would only say that because Jesus' message itself stands as a powerful uh, message to our own being over and above what Christianity makes out of it, And that's a key point, again, from what I talked about earlier, where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven within, and Christianity, particularly Paul, turned that on its head and projects causality outward to some external source and force. 
to really answer your question, one has to put that into the context of what was going on back then and look at the old myth-based uh, religions that were going on at the time. Uh, you had, of course, Roman myth with uh, uh, Jupiter and the gods that were playing their games with people and uh, had these various adventures. You had cults of Isis that were permeating the Roman uh, Roman Empire. Mithras was another one, a, a belief in a guy that was born to a virgin on December 25th, was very popular among soldiers at the, in the army at the time. You had a lot of other myth, but it didn't take much uh, grip on society, but Christianity did. I would say this, that Christianity, at the very least, approaches mankind on a level of value that gives the individual some shred of value, whereas the old religions, the old pagan notions and the stories of gods and myth and all that, that permeated mankind in, whether it was Greek and Roman or any other culture, Christianity made love a key factor. And uh, what is commonly bounded about is family values, that there are values, that we do have values and life has meaning. There was no meaning involved in religions prior to Christianity. However, what is the meaning? Then you have to get down in to see that um, there are elements to Christianity that just simply don't stand up. Not about Jesus' parables, but about what was made out of Christianity through the Middle Ages of extreme power of the church and total intolerance to anybody interpreting things or seeing things other than the way they told you that they were. Did all that come from the Council of Nicaea? It's stemmed from that. Yeah, um, there was a period of time that I can trace that pretty quickly without soaking up too much time. There was a period after Jesus died to when his disciples tried to get mainline Judaism to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Mostly they weren't buying into it because, as I said, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to lead them in rebellion against their oppressors and not for a guy that had been strung up on a cross as a common criminal. So mainline Judaism didn't ultimately buy into it, but it took 100 years for Christianity to break away from Judaism. It was organized through the Jewish structure. Um, But Paul, particularly Paul, around 50, let's say 20 years after Jesus was crucified, during the 40s and 50s, Paul started to bring in Greeks and other non-Jewish people into the movement. And they were much more open to accepting Jesus as a Messiah. But now Paul had redefined the word Christ— is the Greek word equivalent to Messiah. But now for Paul, Christ meant this super person, that all you have to do is believe in him and everything will be wonderful. Well, that's not what Jesus was talking about. Well, if you read okay, let me throw this in then. Isn't that what Peter said right after the ascension in Acts when he when 3,000 people believed? Wasn't that the same? Now Jesus is in the sky and Peter talks about the one who just rose back to heaven. Well, just remember that heaven back then was up above the firmament. So when they saw Jesus rise into the sky, where did he go? Into orbit? You know, we see the earth as a as a globe now that with because we understand space. It was only by 16 or 1700 that we outgrew that notion that the firmament up there was a place. Uh, it goes back to Old Testament traditions of where you could actually be lifted. Uh, one of the prophets was lifted in a whirlwind up into yeah, heaven. Elijah. Well, they pictured heaven as a physical place. So the ascension and the account of seeing Jesus rise into the sky was based on the notion that he was going up through the firmament. And, you know, the understanding for them was that they would open the gates of the firmament to let water through, and that's what, what rain came from, and they would let Jesus up through that. I don't attribute a whole lot of credibility to that, to that part of it. See, and that's that's the the line. So, Daniel, why don't you ask the the uh, question of how did you get into this? You had a great well, definitely. I've I've always wondered with this is probably one of the most studied texts uh, in the history of mankind. Oh yeah, that's for and sure. you know fifty different plus uh, interpretations or editions uh, of the Bible. I'm curious, what does it take to create a forensic investigation into what is truth and what is valid? Well, and, how, and, and especially when there's so much, oh, uh, we don't have much to go on. The Right. Uh, and that's, that's just a, an excellent question. Let's look first at the information that's available on Jesus of Nazareth. 
Uh, I have no doubt that a, a guy existed named Jesus. Uh, Yeshua would have been his name, not Jesus as a, as a kind of a westernization. He undoubtedly existed, but there is no single reference within any historical uh, document that survives about Jesus of Nazareth during his lifetime. And let's say he would have been born probably about 4 BC based on references in the Gospels and would have been crucified around 30. There is no single reference to him until 94 AD when Josephus, a, a Jewish historian working under the auspices of the Romans, it's an interesting story itself, but we don't have time for it, wrote the, uh, the Antiquities of the Jews and mentioned Jesus and James, his brother, and some real characters who appear in the, the Gospels. The only information on Jesus of Nazareth are the five Gospels, the four that appear in the Bible and the Gospel of Thomas, which is a reconstructed gospel that, that circulated in ancient times, but it didn't make the cut at the Council of Nicaea, so it was, it was destroyed, but they found an, an ancient copy in, in, in a dig in Egypt. And the uh, Gospel of Thomas is a series of quotes. It doesn't have a narrative for what he did in his life. The other gospels fill in a narrative for he went here and did this and did that. So you have only these five gospels to go on. Well, who wrote them? Nobody knows who wrote them. Where did they come from? Nobody knows who where they were written. How did the names get attributed? Matthew, well, Mark, Luke, and John. This happened very commonly in ancient times. Of the books of the New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Only eight of them do scholars commonly agree were written by the author attributed, and those are eight letters by Paul. There are another five letters by Paul who clearly weren't written by Paul because the uh, the grammatical usage is different. The point that they make is different. But people stuck Paul's name on it because if you're um, uh, Yosef of Antioch and you have something you really want to say and you write it all down and try to present it to people, nobody believes that. But if you're Yosef of Antioch and you put on the, uh, Joseph, the brother of Jesus, on this epistle then and spread it. Remember, in, in ancient times, there were no publishing houses. There were no editing uh, facilities. If you could write something and convince somebody else it was believable, they could would accept it. So you put a name on it. This is commonly referred to as pseudepigrapha in, in scholarly writing, where you put a famous name on a document, and it becomes uh, much more valid than, or seemingly than if you wrote it yourself. And here's a good example of that in terms of the Gospels. Mark was supposed to be a traveling companion of Peter. But if you read Mark verbatim in English, Mark makes Peter out to be a pretty dumb guy. He never gets it when Jesus is talking about things. It puts Mark and a, a Peter in a very bad light. Peter's even shown to be disbelieving in Jesus when the cock crows and he's disavowed Jesus after Jesus is captured. I don't think Mark, if he was a traveling companion of Peter, would present his buddy in such a negative light. Matthew was supposed to be uh, Levi, the one of the disciples of Jesus. But if Matthew actually had written that, he would have said, we did this, and I did this, and I saw Jesus do that. But Matthew is actually uh, based on Mark. Of the 660 verses in Mark, 600 of, of them appear in Matthew. If Matthew were a disciple, why would he have to copy writings of somebody else? Plus, all of the books are written in Greek. The disciples and key people around Jesus would have been Aramaic-speaking Galileans. Jesus lived in Galilee. But the writers of the, the Gospels are, first of all, 40 years later. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the point I was just going to make. Yeah. So that would be like us. Let's think about back to 40 years. Um, that would be the mid-70s, well, right? This, so that would this be like is Dallas. Us. What about the Kennedy assassination? If suppose the yeah. first hearing you heard was yesterday that Kennedy was assassinated. And the details around it. Yes. Which imagine right if now. those had passed along, if the details had been passed along by word of mouth— I mean, how murky and and uh, crazy the scenarios are for the possibility of conspiracy against Kennedy. One, two, three, four. How many? How many gunmen? Right, all of that, and and we have writing and we have news and so forth. Imagine if those stories had passed along just by word of mouth among illiterate people for forty years. How do you think the Kennedy assassination? So would... why did they start writing about them? Well, at that time, you have to look at the early church, how it began to be founded. Again, it was part of proto-Christianity was part of the Jewish uh, organization. 
the Jewish religion early on. And uh, proto-Christians who believed that Jesus was a Messiah, unlike most of the mainline Jews who didn't, they would have meetings, meetings in houses. And what the only thing they really had to go on were stories and scripture. So they often would do readings from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. They would do readings of that, and they uh, would tell stories that they had heard because 40 years passed of oral traditions of people who saw Jesus or heard him, and they said to other people what they saw and heard, and those people said to other people what they saw and heard, and the message spread out. Well, at each explanation, you get a little bit less reliable information. When the whoever wrote Mark wrote the document, he didn't have a library to go to to look up a biography on Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't have magazines. He didn't have uh, newspaper articles. He didn't even have original listeners because in 40 years, a couple generations went by. People didn't live very long back then. So all he had to go on were oral traditions of stories of stories of stories of people passing it along. One key point to that, Thomas, one key point to the information that was relied upon for the writing of the Gospels is that if I tell you a story and you tell somebody else and they tell somebody else, this is a common, like a parlor game, Chinese whispers or, or something, or telephone. Yeah. You tell it, and the story migrates. But if I tell you a good joke, you have to repeat the joke rather verbatim, or it isn't a joke anymore. The parables were like that. The parables were neat little concise stories that were told. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny thing, but it grows into a great bush. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that you find in a field. And the man found a treasure, and he went and bought the whole field. These little stories were passed along verbatim, while the deeds that Jesus did were exaggerated and exaggerated to 40 years later, he's walking on water. So you think that's what happened? I mean, basically, I've kind of said that, in essence, what happened there. And my marker point, correct me if I'm wrong, this was what I was able to figure out was the Council of Nicaea, that period. Because well, that, yes. All of a sudden, then that's when you started to see a bunch of copies of the the manuscript show up as well. Well, that's a key turning point. Not much before, and a lot afterwards. So something shifted. Yes, something all of a sudden, shifted. Now we've got a book. The Council <laughs> of Nicaea happened in three twenty five. So Jesus died in about thirty. By seventy, the Gospels are starting to be written. Uh, intervening there was Paul, who was establishing his ideas into Christianity. But in the early period before the Council of Nicaea, for in this you know the one hundreds, the two hundreds before three twenty five, Christianity was growing up regionally. You had little bodies of belief, and with uh, uh, Marcon and uh, uh, Valentinus as key, and others Tertullian and Irenaeus as key figures in these early regional versions of Christianity. It was in three twenty five that uh, Constantine said, look, he felt that there was value to Christianity. He had uh, he prayed to the Christian God, and he gained control of the whole Roman Empire, which had been fractured before that. So he attributed causality to the Christian God, and he brought all of these divergent groups together from uh, Antioch, from Alexandria, from Asia Minor, and said, okay, you guys have to get your act in order. You have to get one message. So this whole large committee got together and took the different regional messages, ironed them out, argued, fussed, fumed. You can imagine a bunch of people who strongly believed slightly different things and made them boil down to one one set of beliefs, one uh, doxology, one orth- orthodoxy. What they did then was go and take all of the other regional beliefs and destroy the documents which pertain to their local little beliefs and sort of make like that orthodoxy was the dominant belief the whole time, which is absolutely historically not true. There were regional beliefs and arguments about many points that that ultimately became orthodoxy. So Constantine uh, then eliminated persecution. The Christians had been blamed for a lot of issues. Remember, in early times, people blamed the gods for all problems. And they were blaming Christians because the Christians didn't believe in the other gods, so the Christians were often persecuted. Fed to the lions. And fed to lions <laughs> and so forth. However, by the end of the 4th century, the, the, uh, the Roman Empire absorbed Christianity as the state faith. And from that point on, the, you know, the meat cleaver was in the other hand. 
they were very brutal to anybody who didn't believe Christianity. <laughs> that's that, that's not often shifted. pointed out. So in order to create this state religion, we have to have somebody bigger than uh, the population, right? We have to have somebody, like you say, up in the sky that we looked up to. And, and what I've kind of likened it to, and I say this with all total respect for what people believe, but it's almost like what was created was the adult version of Santa Claus. Santa Claus can fly in the sky. He can slide down chimneys. He can cover the globe in a six-hour period to yes. bring toys to boys and girls. That's uh, quite accurate in, okay. in effect. So let's do a little quick round robin here, mm-hmm. okay? Real quick answers. Who was Jesus then, really? Who was this guy? Uh, like many visionaries throughout time, he could see clearly that each of us is connected with the world. What he had to do was take that rather metaphysical, esoteric message and put it in a terminology that a peasant fisherman or farmer could understand. So he had to liken it with the parables as uh, it's like this. It's a metaphor. Uh, Not unlike uh, Lao Tzu, uh, around whose teachings Taoism begins. Lao Tzu saw a flow in reality, and he tried to picture it in Chinese terms uh, 500 years, 600 years before Jesus. The Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, from the Hinduistic uh, culture and traditions, he could see that all of life is interrelated. And he had to try to explain how you go inward, how you correct negative thinking and negative actions inwardly. Uh, Plotinus, who was lived about the year 300, he was a uh, originally an Egyptian, but he 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 had mystic experiences where he could see the one and tried to explain how that works. Jesus, like all of them and modern mystics, had to try to explain how life works to people who saw life in a certain light that wasn't necessarily accurate, but they believed it to be accurate, and therefore they couldn't hear his message. It's a a tricky situation at all times, and of course I run into it, and I'm sure Daniel does too, to try to get people to see beyond their current set of definitions, the box that they've boxed themselves into with their beliefs, see outside that to question a little bit as to whether what you currently believe might possibly not be accurate. Was his mother a virgin? Uh, That story was invented probably around the year 80. And you know that because Paul, okay, Jesus died in about the year 30, was crucified, I have no doubt about that. Paul lived in the, and spoke and taught in the 40s and 50s, and Paul, again, founded Christianity. He never mentions the virgin birth. That would have been a significant thing for him to mention if, if that were an idea at the time in the 40s and 50s. Mark wrote in, the, in the, around the year 70, and Mark, as I mentioned, Matthew and Luke both derive from Mark about 15 years later. Mark doesn't mention anything about a virgin birth. Matthew and Luke do. So the idea was rather invented at some point between 70 and 85. And the difficulty is, and why you know that, because the two stories they tell are mutually exclusive. If you read the nativity story in Matthew versus Luke, uh, they both can't be true. They tell different, different situations, and generally, traditionally, we try to stick them together, concatenate them and say, well, oh, the... You know, the wise men came from the east and the shepherds came from here. But one of them tells about the shepherds. One tells about the wise men. But if you read both Matthew and Luke next to each other, in Matthew, uh, Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem. The wise men come. uh, Joseph has a dream, and they go to Egypt for two or three years, come back, and because Archelaus, this is historically accurate now, Archelaus is in control of Judea, they don't want to go back to Bethlehem, and Archelaus was a rotten son of a gun. (laughs) The Romans displaced him, so that's kind of an accurate thing, but they went, went to Nazareth and moved there. If you read Luke, they live in Nazareth to begin with. They come to Bethlehem for a, a census that's unknown to history, but and, and for some reason they had to go back to your homeland where your ancestor a thousand years ago came from. How would you even know that? But they go to Bethlehem, have the baby, the, the shepherds get the street address somehow from these angels, go to visit Jesus, and after he's born, they go to Jerusalem for the rites for birth, and then go back home. 
those cannot both be true. You can't have gone to Egypt for two years and have gone to Beth to Jerusalem, uh, with many more details involved that that make them exclusive. So t- the quick question, the quick answer is that those stories were made up at some point, probably around the year eighty. So you said you're convinced that he died. I yeah, I think in again uh, relying a bit on religious scholarship. The religious scholars, as they uh, comb the old um, manuscripts to try to make more sense of them, negative reported events are much more likely to be accurate about Jesus than positive. Uh, For example, Mark talks about a a time when Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers come to get Jesus because they think he's gone crazy and try to get him and take him home. And Jesus makes the comment, well, who are my mothers and brothers? I mean, he had his point of view, and he realized his mothers didn't get it. His mother and brothers didn't get it, but some of the people around him he hoped would. Okay, that's a story in Mark. When Matthew takes that story, he eliminates the they thought he was crazy part, and Luke does the same thing. So those stories are kind of purged of a thing that makes Jesus look negative. By the later Gospels there and then John, they said very little negative towards Jesus. So anything that comes through, you can guess is fairly accurate. So when he was crucified, mm-hmm. it was basically on the on the basis that he claimed to be God. So that was blasphemy. I now, think he was, well, I don't know that even the Gospels say that. I think by the time you get to John, you kind of imply that. But uh, I think basically he was brought in for sedition. He was causing problems, and the Romans historically had no tolerance for anybody causing problems. But wasn't it the Jews who instigated? I mean, it was the Pharisees. It was the you don't know that council. That's what they say. But if you actually go to an historic uh, rendering of it, by the time the Gospels were written, the Pharisees were a very common sect, and they were traveling around giving talks and so forth. At the time of the rendering, you know, when, when Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written, the Pharisees kind of became foils for Jesus, became bad guys. But historically, if you go back to the time of Jesus, the Pharisees weren't very common. And so a lot of the framework for the context that Jesus was put into in the Gospels are more uh, late first century than early first century, which then lends you to doubt uh, the reports as particularly historically viable. So the point is, you don't know that. That's what it says. And of course, if you believe that, then that's your context for evaluating it. But if you look at it uh, based on history and based on other things that are known, that's kind of questionable. I know we've we've cracked the window here at least, and <laughs> I want to I want to catch. There were so many other things I'd like to ask you. Did he rise from the dead? Did he ascend? Is there a rapture? Is there a tribulation? Is there going to be an Armageddon? But Let's um, maybe that's in the book, and if not, write a blog article, please, and address those. But um, what is the so? Let's shift this over to what is the true message that was there? The true message is that the kingdom of heaven is within. It's within you, as it's within me and everybody. That uh, very much like I say in my other books and on my website, you attract events in your life. You're connected with the world that exists around you. And Jesus was aware of that. Ultimately, in my book, I look at nine different elements of his parables that support this uh, timeless metaphysical recognition of the connection of consciousness, which we all are, with the reality that we encounter. He had to put it in a framework that peasants could somehow grasp, which he did brilliantly. But most of them didn't. And the disciples clearly didn't. Uh, Daniel and I were talking about this little point that the Catholic Church, Orthodoxy, claims that their real connection with the truth goes the whole way back to Jesus, that Jesus taught the disciples and the disciples passed along the word directly to them. But if you read the Gospels, the disciples never got the message. Every time Jesus says, oh, the kingdom of heaven is like this, then afterwards or during that that framework where he's presenting it, they'll say, what does that mean? Or we don't understand that. Over and over again, he even in one of them, I think in Matthew, he says, are you stupid? I tell you guys this stuff behind the scenes, that the kingdom of heaven is within. And they'll come back and say, well, when is the kingdom going to arrive? And he'll say, it's here right now. You just don't see it. So the trick is to filter out what Jesus said. That's uh, your forensic 
connection to get the message is read what Jesus said. The accounts of what he did and secondhand reports and so forth, there's a, a message in there. In my book, that's what I try to bring out. I actually reconstruct Jesus' life based on uh, plausible situations, where he would have had to travel, what ideas he would have had to encounter, both Eastern and Greek, in order to start questioning his standard first-century Jewish thinking and uh, see the world much more clearly. So uh, that all can be reconstructed based on current understanding and uh, cultural and historical situations. What would you say your motivation is in um, getting this message out, the real I think you said earlier that this this Christianity is so intertwined with our thinking. And would you say that a lot of this, what is uh, misrepresented in the Bible, is gets in the, our way of seeing the world clearly? Yes, uh, absolutely. Again, if you could filter out what Jesus said, and I would uh, say throw away the rest, you would be much better off. Jesus had a, gr- a deep thorough understanding. But again, he had to put it in terminology that appealed to fishermen and and peasants of primitive times. We in our culture have other visionaries of of, uh, great value that you you should check around. I've often made this comment to people who are are strong uh, Christian believers. I said, you know, if you go to buy a refrigerator, you go to a couple different stores or a car, you go to different dealers, you compare, well, do I want this or do I want that? Do I want fuel mileage? But yet you take the first religion you were handed. Look around a little bit. You know, look at what other teachers, other, pre, other uh, visionaries were saying through time, and you'll see that there's a trend which impacts you in life. The main shortcoming to Christianity is the projection of causality to something out there, a big uh, remote god in the sky, because to your own functional subconscious, that makes you powerless, reduces your value and and practically neutralizes your self-image by making all power coming from somewhere else. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. And all you have to do is read the quotes in uh, in the New Testament from what he's saying, the kingdom of heaven, the parables. So if the kingdom of God is within, how would you reckon—is there a God? People have asked me that, and I'd say, yes, there is, and it's you. You create the patterns in your life. You attract the relationships and— health issues, and if you want to change the pattern, you need to find the specific inner roots within your subconscious and change. And when you do that, you can change. Now, Jesus, in his time, couldn't talk about psychological elements of your mindset. He couldn't talk about self-hypnosis. Whether he was aware of the, the, the direct, intimate connection between you and the, the meaning of your life, I don't know. But what he could see, and what he tried to picture was that within you lie the roots to the quality of your life, and right now, not some heaven later, but right now. I mean, heaven and hell are right here in your life right now, and for the the listener of uh, to this podcast, you'll find hell in your life when things don't work right, when you have pain instead of good feeling, when you have rejection instead of love, and you find heaven when you when things do work right. Well, for most of us, we have a little of each. For me personally, I never liked the hell part. So much of my trip is to get the hell out of here, you know, <laughs> to eliminate the negative or the inability to uh, to have what I want and make my life better right now. Hmm. The problem that I had with my mother, you know, we talked about earlier of my you know mother walking me home from school. The standard Christian paradigm is, be subservient to God now and do A, B, C, D that God wants you to do, and you'll be rewarded later. For a mother, the, the reward was always later. The difficulty is that one great metaphysical truth is that we live in a now moment. Always. There is no later. We're always stuck in this now moment. So if you're always looking for wonderful, good things later, you never get them because later never happens. Your life is a qualitative uh, reflection of your own nature right now, the good and the bad. The good you don't have to mess with because it's, those are patterns that are reflective of your intent and your, your desire and uh, your wish for joy and love. The bad parts, those have inner roots. You can find them and change them. Uh, again, Jesus couldn't be that specific, 
but he had to weave little uh, metaphor just to try to get that message across. In modern times, we have more tools. We have a more sophisticated language. We have a much better understanding. So you can go a much deeper illustration of this connection that we all have with life. The thing I love about your book is the first part of it, you really go into detail at how you dissect what's wrong with you know with the inconsistencies and what does that mean and so we kind of sift through the i guess the bs that's there and you then you make present to what are the what is the real message of Jesus and what i thought was genius is extrapolating or reconcile how these thoughts or uh, new ideas uh, new ideas meaning that it wasn't like in the consciousness of the time and these teachings were brought forth in Jesus in your your parable, which could be as, as easily true as anything else in the Bible. It's a very comprehensive book. It's 400 pages, The, the Illusion of Truth. And, uh, yeah, I start with the background. I look in depth at the Gospels. They're fascinating documents, but there's much more there than you'll get if you simply read the English. And there's a great deal. I did, I did my homework. It's not just my point of view— put into uh, other words, I did an enormous amount of research into scholarly writing for what they've discerned about the, the, the documents that are the Gospels. Then I recreate Jesus' life, and it's only then when I point out the parables, because I've walked you through what ideas a first-century Jew would have had to encounter, and I'm presuming Jesus to be intelligent, witty. You know, there's humor in the parables— uh, in, engaged with life, there's uh, he wasn't this goody-goody kind of a you know character that's generally presented. He would have been a fun guy, and he would have traveled. He would have enjoyed the first century life. And I did again a, a lot of research onto what was historically going on then, where he would have traveled to see ideas. Uh, uh, Joseph, by the way, uh, was. His occupation is what Jesus would have learned. In the first century, there was no training programs or schools. You learned what your father did for a living, and you did that. And what Joseph and Jesus did was not a carpenter, as is traditionally stated. And the Greek word was tekton, that's ref- that they're all referred to as. And tekton was like a builder, uh, like a day worker, a, a construction guy. So as I reconstruct Jesus' life, uh, you know if you deal with with with. Uh, construction people, if you do drywall, you can probably do some plumbing. If you do, if you're a roofer, you can you can build a framework. They construction guys just have a sense to them about building. In the first century, as Jesus was growing up, the nearby city to Nazareth, about an hour's walk, was Sepphoris, and Sepphoris was re- being rebuilt because at the time Jesus was born, Herod the Great died, and there was a rebellion, and Sepphoris was leveled. His son, Herod Antipas, the Herod that appears for most of the time during the, the, the Gospels, Antipas rebuilt Sepphoris as his crowning glory. Without any doubt, if you look at that situation, Joseph would have traveled to uh, Sepphoris and taken his son with him, Jesus, and later probably James and the other brothers, except that apparently Joseph died. So Jesus would have, by a teenager time, would have had to take over the responsibility of the family. He would have gone to Sepphoris for jobs. There's nothing going on in Nazareth. First of all, he couldn't have been a carpenter because as we talked last night, there isn't any wood there. It's a desert. (laughs) And the people at the time didn't have furniture. They lived pretty much on dirt floor, mud brick homes. So they had a little bit of stuff. But if you're building cabinets in Nazareth, you first of all have no material to work with and second, no customers. Right. They did construction. And what was going on at the time was a rebuilding of Sepphoris. So um, that and other historical things, Jesus would have traveled and construction guys can find jobs. So uh, all you have to do to kind of put together a life format for Jesus is see what was going on at the time and kind of follow the trek. (laughs) Tom, when since you've arrived at my house yesterday afternoon, I'm hosting you while you're here in Dallas, Fort Worth. I have to say that I have learned more (laughs) about the history of the Bible and of that time and the geography and just the dynamics that was going on in civilization at that time than I ever thought possible. Oh, it's it's a fascinating story, and it's kind of sad, really. You know, I talk to people, and they say, oh, I do a Bible study. And I say, well, uh, what are you studying? And what they do is kind of recycle a bunch of old phrases. There's a, a fascinating 
history to the the world that was going on at the time, the impact that Jesus' ideas had. Uh, in my book, I actually didn't even quite finish it, but we were leading to that point. After I discussed the parables, nine elements of his parables that indicate his awareness of this connection we have, then I look at what happened after Jesus died. Uh, you know, the immediate impact on the his uh, little uh, family and entourage would have been devastated at his crucifixion. What would have happened then? Uh, what they did with the body. I mean, the resurrection is, uh, that's probably also an invention of uh, around the 80s. But of course, we do, as conscious entities, we do survive death. That's plausible. But anyway, then I look at five years later, ten years later, Paul comes onto the scene. The disciples are trying to get the Jewish hierarchy to accept that Jesus was Messiah. Paul comes onto the scene, starts to bring in Greeks and, and outsiders. They were reluctant to become Jews first because none of the men wanted to do circumcision. So Paul got the disciples, James, the brother of Jesus, and the other disciples to relax the requirement to become Jews. Ultimately, uh, they split. You know, by the end of the first century, what's going on? Irenaeus, other other people uh, get involved. And what happens in the next hundred years up through the Council of Nicaea, beyond the Council of Nicaea, and up through the Inquisition and the highly authoritarian uh, view of the church that, that tolerated absolutely no difference of interpretation. And you had to get through that period up into modern times. So the, the book covers, you're right, a lot. <laughs> and I thank you for, actually, the, the book for me helps reconcile a lot of the conflicts that I saw as a kid in my reading of the Bible and gives me something uh, tangible to actually take a hold of. And though your core message, uh, the kingdom of God is within, yeah. is timeless. And I, we need to wrap it up because I realize that we have another talk to do. Mm, you guys have to <laughs> have to kick you out of the studio here. But um, the thing that I, I had an aha moment, and this puts a, just a bow tie around this whole conversation, because Tom, when you said that the message that Christ, how has this stood the test of time, is that it is rooted in love. Yeah. And there's a, a piece that I read uh, on the way to the airport this morning that uh, uh, I will put on the website, by the way, subconsciousmindmastery.com. It was a letter from Albert Einstein to his daughter. Now, the guy who discovered the theory of relativity tells his daughter, lock this letter up, and not only after his death, but decades after his death, to disclose this. And he said only when the consciousness of the planet has elevated to the point where they can understand it. If this is authentic, if it is, the message was that the greatest energy that it can ever be discovered is love. That's a, a powerful statement, Thomas, but let me, let me kind of finish up with this one comment, that often in Christianity they say, oh, Jesus says love your neighbor, and that's one of the key points I mentioned in the nine, love your neighbor. It's hard, well, it's first of all, impossible to love your neighbor just because somebody says you should. You either do or you don't. Love doesn't come from a, a rational conclusion. You either feel good or you don't. It's very difficult to love somebody if you blame him or her for your problems. But when you see that you're connected and that you attract negativity into your life and you can eliminate that by delving within, then your life is better and you quit blaming other people, then you can love everybody and accept them for the complex character that they are, the good and the bad that they might hold, because you don't feel them as a threat. Love is a key facility, a key element to what we are. It gets damaged by fear and hopelessness and powerlessness and that sort of thing, but love is the key to what we are. Daniel, real quick, tell people about your group that's meeting this afternoon. Well, the first Sunday of every month is the uh, the meeting of the area DFW IONS. IONS stands for the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Uh, we are like a book club, and we uh, we get together and have conversations that make a difference. And the topic of the conversations are science, bridging the gap between science and spirituality. We operate under the umbrella of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California, created by Edgar Mitchell, former astronaut, based on his spiritual epiphany when he had when he was in uh, space. 
our little group, uh, we're not directly connected to IONS, but they support our, our gatherings. And, Tom, how many IONS group have you spoken to oh, across the country? Easily 80. You know, they're very open-minded. They're curious. They aren't affixed to some idea that they're going to judge you against. So, yeah, I've, and I've spoken here before, uh, seven years ago maybe, and uh, all across the country, Canada, I've, I've spoken to a lot of IONS groups. So, Daniel, for people in the DFW area, how could they find you? They can find us on meetup.com, uh, DFW IONS. The website is being reconstructed, uh, dfwions.com. And uh, they can also find, if they're in this area, that's how they can find us. You can find a group anywhere in the country by going to the, the noetic.org and look at all the research that's there. Also find a community group that is close to you anywhere in the country or the world. Great. Tom, thank you for being here. Oh, really it was, appreciate it. It was fun. It. We covered a lot, didn't we? And Daniel, <laughs> thank you for bringing him. Thank you. The opinions on this podcast are those of the host based on personal experience only and are not intended as medical or psychological advice. If you are experiencing symptoms that require professional treatment, please contact a licensed medical practitioner. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate.